Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. So last week we began thinking about this topic of the fear of the Lord. And we went through, if you remember, a number of verses that taught us that fearing the Lord was was a good thing, that it was something that is commanded repeatedly in Scripture. It's not, it's not uh, simply commanded in the Old Testament and neglected in the New Testament or vice versa. It's across the board. You remember that it even characterized the Son of God during His incarnation of, of having a spirit of the fear of the Lord upon Him. And so we figure that something that was practiced, something that was experienced and practiced by the Son of God must be an example for us to follow. Right? The fear of the Lord is, is clearly found all throughout Scripture. Fearing God is not something that was pious for God's people at some point and then became impious at another point. Um, say pious for the people in the Old Testament, but somehow impious for God's people in the New Testament. All of Scripture clearly teaches that Christians are to fear the Lord. In fact, Christians, those who, and this was the point that we concluded on last time, and and, and it is in fact Christians, those born again by the Spirit, who are the only ones who truly can and do fear the Lord. The first three chapters of Paul's epistle to the Romans is, an ex, is a, a wonderful and powerful treatise on the depravity, the sinfulness of man outside of Jesus Christ. He teaches there, the Holy Spirit teaches us there, that Jew and Gentile alike are all buried under sin, Right? For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So we're born by nature children of wrath. We, um, we are dead in our sins. We are depraved and can do nothing that pleases God because all that we do is done without faith. It's not until we exercise our faith where we're doing anything that truly pleases God. And then in Romans chapter 3, the verse I just gave you was Romans 3, 9. Then this, a compilation of Old Testament quotes, mostly from the Psalms. Psalm three ten, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's interesting, that passage, how many body parts are mentioned in it, right? You got... You got tongues and mouths and throats and feet and eyes, um, and I, I think that's very intentional. The the apostle, the Holy Spirit, is painting the picture of the entire depravity of 
of each one of us. Every one of our faculties, right, is fallen. Our minds are fallen. Our bodies are fallen. And um, we do not, outside of the regeneration of the Spirit, this is how we are. We do not seek for God. We do not do good. All that we do is, is, is evil. And we have, therefore, no fear of God. The unbeliever, the one who doesn't have the Spirit, is the one who has no fear of God. Just walks blithely through this life, not, not once giving a thought to God, not once being fearful of any action he takes. But there may be fear from, I mean, he doesn't want to get busted, right? There may be fear that comes from the sword of the state. Um, some repercussions. Everybody fears discipline to a certain extent. But there is no consciousness of God. There is no uh, thinking of God and that making him halt in his actions. That's how all of us are before we are regenerated, before we are in Christ and united to him. So it's necessary to point out that that is the common characteristic of mankind. Um, if you have not been given a knowledge of God by God, then this fearlessness is descriptive of you. You don't fear God. So all of mankind outside of Christ can be described in this way. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, this is worth pointing out for what reasons. First, we can look at the thoughts, we can look at the actions, we can look at the statements, we can look at the lifestyles of unbelievers and think that we are witnessing the fear of God. They may fear death, they may fear disease, they may fear pain, they might fear spiders, they might fear black helicopters, they might fear loneliness, they may fear all sorts of things, but they don't fear God. Okay? As Paul wrote earlier in the book of Romans, those who don't fear God, those who are unbelievers, are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is a good description of someone who has no fear of God, isn't it? All those sins listed there, and then not just the sins listed there, the further point that they affirm other people in their sins. Right? That certainly indicates a lack of the fear of the Lord when you are a promoter of evil. Right? You become a promoter of evil. Those who have no fear of God have no trouble breaking God's laws and giving hearty approval to all other lawbreakers. So nothing about the life of an unbeliever will demonstrate to us a fear of the Lord. They don't care what God wants or who God is. And yet, that passage I just read, what did we learn about them? They know the ordinance of God and yet continue to break them and give hearty approval to those who do. So it's not an ignorance. It's a willful disobedience. They don't care what God wants or who God is and they have no compunction in going after what they want. That's how they live their lives. Without fear, 
And how do they then determine what they do next? Whatever they want. Whatever they want. Conversely then, second. Conversely then, it is only the life of a true believer that will demonstrate the fear of the Lord. True believers fear God. The difference between the unbeliever and the believer is not as we might think that the unbeliever doesn't know God's law and the believer knows God's law. Right? No, Paul just said what I, what I made mention of, that although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Not only do they know the ordinance, but they know there's a punishment that goes along with the ordinance, worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They have a law written on the heart. They have a conscience. So the difference between a believer and an unbeliever It's not that the believer knows what is right and the unbeliever doesn't know what is right. They both do. The difference is that one responds with fear and the other does not. The fear of the Lord is the difference in in the two. One fears God while knowing his law and one doesn't fear God while knowing his law. The, the difference is that the believer has an understanding of sin and it's offense to a holy God. Right? Sin is known not simply as something that can lead to my punishment, but sin is in relation to a holy God. It's in reference to God. Even considering sin is in reference to God and His character, not simply in reference to self. And so... The difference is that a believer has an understanding of sin and its offense to a holy God, whereas the, the unbeliever, I think I just said believer when I, or unbeliever when I meant believer. The believer has an understanding of sin and its offense to a holy God, whereas the unbeliever could care less about God's holiness. He may know by the law written on his heart these ordinances, but they are a, just a load of junk to him. There's something to be suppressed. There's something to be put down. There's something to do work to ignore. Right? He suppresses the truth in his conscience. Then what happens to his conscience? The conscience becomes seared. And a seared conscience stops functioning. Right? It, 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 um, it, does, not, uh, it does not act like it should. It's um, defunct. Third, so... The believer knows that God hates sin and will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. Right? The unbeliever doesn't care what God thinks and just goes around promoting sin. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Right? So the believer knows that God hates sin and... The guilty will not go unpunished, but the unbeliever knows that God has hates sin, but goes around promoting that sin. Fourth, the, the believer also knows this. The, the believer knows this and loves this and spends his life meditating on it. God the Father poured out his wrath upon God the Son, Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because God hates sin. That's why God poured out His wrath upon the Son, His Son, Jesus Christ. He knows that sins 
have been dealt with, have been punished with a heavy cost, right? And the believer knows that his sins have been dealt with through that heavy cost of the Son of God bearing the wrath of God the Father. And that's precisely where the Apostle Paul goes in the uh, book of Romans. Romans 3.21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Right? And so so that 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 wrath of God being poured out on Jesus that propitiates the Father allows God then to retain his perfect holiness. He's both just in punishing sin and he's the justifier in forgiving sinners. Okay, so five, with that justification, right? Uh, that forgiveness of sins, that lifts our head, right? We get, we should, um, like I preached this morning, uh, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. He's conquered death. He's, he's overcome our sins. We could therefore conclude with all this glorious justification that the believer should not have a fear of God. Right? I mean, you will often hear that conclusion made in the church, that there shouldn't be a fear of God for believers. I mean, his sins have been punished in Jesus Christ, and he has peace with God, and that those things are both very true and eternally true. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Right? It's all just reveling in the, the, the glory and the joy and the strength and the forgiveness of God. Well, then in comes 1 John 4.18. And open up there. In your Bibles, First John four eighteen. And First John four eighteen says, "There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love." And so this becomes the. This becomes the paradigm by which we, we put to sleep all those other New Testament passages and Old Testament passages that commend to us a fear of the Lord, right? 1 Corinthians 7, 1, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, right? That's, that's to be our pursuit. Well, not so fast, Paul. You know, perhaps the Apostle John has the trump card here. And that it shouldn't be fear in which we perfect holiness. It should be maybe this love that we perfect holiness in. Well, so what, is, what does he mean here? What does John mean here? 
Dr. Piper, who's um, the president out at Greenville Seminary, in a foreword on a book on the fear of the Lord, summarizes the conundrum without giving an answer. He says this, Many find the doctrine of the fear of God greatly confusing. After all, the Apostle Paul, who claims to be motivated by the fear of God, contrasts the spirit of adoption with the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Romans 8.15 And the Apostle John says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. The problem, of course, is definitions, he says. We have pretty good ideas about the meaning of faith and love, but what is the fear of the Lord, and how does it relate to concepts like faith and love? Our fuzzy thinking concerning the concepts of the fear of God is not because of any lack of clarity in the Word of God, but because of the paucity of teaching on the topic. And he goes on and says, when, when did you ever hear a sermon in the church on the fear of the Lord? And I was like, yeah, we've heard it. Um, it's in the nick of time. So, so how do we reconcile all the commands to fear the Lord, all the commendations of fearing God, and what the Apostle John says here? And so at this point, this is where I begin to, where you have, like Piper said, you have to bring in definitions, right? You have to begin to define things. And the distinction I want to make is the difference between slavish fear and filial fear. Now, slavish fear is, is the kind of fear that people in horror movies feel, right? They just feel like they're going to die if they turn around the corner. That's a slavish fear. They, they have no control over it. It just comes on them, and it's an absolute terror, right? It's terror. Whereas, what does filial mean? What does filial mean? Who knows the, that word? Filial, family, fatherly, right? A, a, fami- a filial fear is, a, is a, the sort of fear that you have toward a father. It's a respecting of authority, right? But then it's authority within a bond of love. Right? It's authority with commitment, whereas slavish fear is, is just pure authority without any bond of love. It's, it's just pure tyranny. Okay? And so we, we need to distinguish between slavish fear and filial fear. We do not uh, fear, we as believers do not fear an unkind master who is unpredictable. Is God unpredictable? No. No, he's, he's always acting in perfect accord to his character, which is perfect, right? He's not impetuous. He doesn't fly off the handle. He is without, you know, he's without passions, which means that he is always, always in control, right? But, the, but slavish fear is when you're fearing somebody that is absolutely, unquestionably uh, unpredictable. We fear, we fear a gracious and omnipotent Father who has already sacrificed His Son on our behalf. Right? That's the that's the context within which we fear. In other words, our fear is not devoid or contradictory to the love of God. Our fear of God fits in the love of God. Our fear approximates the fear we all had of disappointing the ones we love. Right? It's our fear of God should be similar to that. So perfect love 
casts out that slavish fear, but in no way casts out the utter distinction between Almighty Holy God and dependent sinful man. Right? It, it, there's still a great distance between us and the Father. Right? And we still continue to sin, though having been redeemed and loved by Him. And so fear is appropriate when sin is still present. And yet slavish fear has been thrown out because the Son of God has been sacrificed on your behalf. God is, has committed Himself to you. Right? So perfect love casts out that slavish fear, but in no way casts out the utter distinction between Almighty God and sinful man. William Perkins, I think I shared this last time, said this, The fear of God is that whereby man, acknowledging both God's mercy and justice, does as the greatest evil fear to displease God. That's filial fear. You dis, you're displeased to, to disappoint your father. You, you love him so deeply, and he's done such intense deeds for you, that to sin against him is the worst kind of ingratitude. And it really should. It should fill us with a fear. John Preston, another Puritan, said, If you love the Lord, it will cause you to fear and tremble at his word and at his judgments for whom a man loves much, he regards much. He is much affected with what he does. So, because of the intensity of our love and the way we regard God, then we, we are scrupulous about how we behave before that God. On the other hand, think of this. Slavish fear hates God for His holiness. Right? Slavish fear, the fear that is just like God's out to get me, begins to despise God for His holiness. But filial fear... You never get to the point where you're despising God for His holiness. You, you, are, you are coming more and more to appreciate His holiness, right? You're coming more and more to know His love and coming more and more to know how displeasing your ongoing sin is for Him. And so it's, it's, a, it's a further intense knowledge of God's holiness. But slavish fear? Slavish fear leads to hating God's holiness because, because then... Everything is simply about God's going to be around the next corner out to get you. Thomas Manton said, Slavish fear hates God for His holiness and fears Him for His wrath. They wish His destruction that there were no God partly because it causes an incomplete reformation. It makes a man forbear sin, but not hate sin. Right? That slavish fear hates God for His holiness. And they want no God because uh, they're tired of living in the fear, that slavish fear. In the end then, I would say this, that the fear of the Lord that is proper is the kind of fear that doesn't lead to a distortion of God's character. Okay? The fear of the Lord that's proper doesn't end up distorting his character. It is the kind of fear that acknowledges the comprehensive and finished nature of Christ's sacrifice and God's grace, and yet simultaneously holds that God is a consuming fire and a God of wrath who will judge every man according to his deeds. 
right? And if you go off the rails on either side, your life will your life is not going to be what the Christian life is supposed to be, and I think that's an alloy, an alloy between fear and love. We absolutely revel in the love of God, and we rest in it, and we know peace like no other human knows, and we absolutely fear God and, and tremble before Him as we work out our salvation, right? As we seek to obey His commands, we tremble before Him. And so you see, in the Christian, there's this alloy of love and fear. They work together, and they're both necessary. And so, um, go off the rails either way, and your life will not be a perfect alloy of fear and love, of trembling and of peace of the pursuit of sanctification and the joy of justification, right? The pursuit of, of holiness and the knowledge that we are holy in Jesus Christ. The already and the not yet, right? So if we want to cast fear of God out of Christianity, if we want to get rid of it, if we want to say that's a sub-Christian or a non-Christian uh, doctrine, we end up with a situation where the unbeliever cannot fear God and the believer must not fear God. And then all these commands, it gets really confusing at that point, right? Why is the Scripture always telling us to fear the Lord then? Why then the Scripture is shouting at us to fear God? Is it that the fear the believer is to have for God is something different? In other words, let's replace every place in, in the Scripture where it uses the word fear with the word reverence or even love. Right? Is, is that the fear of the Lord? Is it really just reverence? Is it really just awe? Is it really adoration? Is it just honor toward God? And not trembling and being afraid of God, as the words indicate. A trembling. A fearfulness. A, a response to omnipotent power. An appropriate response to the one who will judge the living and the dead. We know that God loves us, that God is love, and that whoever has Jesus Christ abides in the love of God. Amen? We know that. As the Apostle John writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We know that the punishment due to our sins has fallen upon Christ. Right? It's fallen upon Christ, and we rejoice in that. And Paul writes, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Knowing this, well, it seems like fear is cast out. We no longer fear this, though. We no longer fear the sentence of eternal death on the last day. That's what we stop fearing. We no longer fear the sentence of death, but the fear of God continues. Right? In another sense, we are, what, what are we to make of verses like the following? For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power, instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy. In regard to all, the peop- all this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then 
he shall become a sanctuary. It's Isaiah 8, 11 through 14. You know, the people are telling that the, the prophet is being told by the people all sorts of things to fear, all calamities. And, and God comes to him and says, no, 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 no. Fear me. I'm going to be your dread. And in being your dread, then I'll be your sanctuary. I mean, is that dread, terror, and sanctuary together in one, one verse. It's like love, love and, and, and fear, you know, being written on top of one another. Right? Terror and sanctuary. Sanctuary is where we have no dread. And yet he says there, if you, if you dread me, you will have a sanctuary. Or why would Jesus say to the apostles, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell? Or why this combination of things if they are synonymous? So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Fear and comfort. Fear and comfort. Fear and love. Right? These things that we in our minds conceive of as contradictory are not in the Christian. They're alloys that come together. And it's, it's because of the fullness of the character of God that we understand, understand this. Or why verses like these? Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during your time of stay, the time of your stay on earth. Do not be conceited, but fear, for God, if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Right? Constant, constant reminders of this. But because of the glorious and full character of God requires us both to have a love and a fear, a comfort and a trembling. Right? John Murray, in a chapter of a book on ethics called The Fear of God, The Soul of Godliness, it's a book on ethics called The Fear of God. I mean, think about that. That's one of the points I want to make is we continue to fear God so that we might walk in holiness. The fear of the God leads to walking in obedience. And so it's a great title for a book on ethics because ethics is trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong and then following what's right. So John Murray in a chapter on the book called The Fear of God, The Soul of God, and writes, the fear of God could be nothing less than the soul of rectitude. That's moral uprightness. It is the apprehension of God's glory that constrains the fear of his name. It's apprehending his, his full glory so that we may fear his name. It is that same glory that commands our total commitment to him, but also our total trust and obedience. The fear of God is but the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent perfection which alone could warrant and demand the totality of our commitment in love and devotion. There is much loose thinking, he says, on this aspect of the question. Is it proper to be afraid of God? The only proper answer, he says, is that it is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. It's the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. There's reason to be afraid because we still sin. There's reason to be afraid because God is holy. Right? 
And so, so next time, what we'll come around to is, is how um, this has been, again, very conceptual, trying to convince you of the need for the fear of God, but how do we fear God? What does it look like? What, how do we go about this? Um, when, when is it intense? When, you know, um, so we'll come, we'll come back to this next time. But uh, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for showing us Yourself and, and reminding us that You are just and the justifier. And that we, by that, are to love and rest and be at ease and at peace with You. And also fear and walk with sobriety, Father, and, and, and do what is right for fear of displeasing You. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your awesome power. We thank You for the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank You for propitiation. Lord, we thank You that, the, that our sins were dealt with upon the cross by Your Son and that we will enjoy the resurrection from the dead by faith. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.